Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our devices to the book of Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 11. We're going to look at that chapter, verses 1 through 10. We're in a section that deals with the establishing of the Passover, and um, we'll see it uh, in chapters 11, 12, and beyond. So this morning, we're just going to take these 10 verses. The topic, Moses' final warning is that as midnight strikes, all of Egypt will weep and wail when their firstborn are killed. The title of our message, after midnight, you're going to cry, lament, and shout. (laughs) Apologies to Eric Clapton. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As always, we believe that this ancient text has contemporary application to our lives. We want to understand it in its context, Lord, not ignoring that. It's real history. We want to see what the people actually went through who lived this story. But we want it brought up to date, Lord, so that we can leave this place uh, filled with the wonder of your love for us. It's a tall order except for the fact that your Holy Spirit is here to be our teacher. We invite him, Lord, into our hearts to take your inspired word and inspire us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I wonder if you could name the seven wonders of the ancient world. Just think about it for a second, and I'll go through the list. I don't know if this is in any particular order. I don't think it is. But one of them was the Colossus of Rhodes, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the statue of Zeus at Olympia, Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. If you're trying to book a tour for the seven wonders of the world, they're down to one. The Great Pyramid of Giza is the only one that still exists. I tried to get a list of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world that took their place, but there's everybody's guess as to what they are. And then there's seven wonders of the modern world and seven wonders of the natural world. Uh, People go crazy with this kind of stuff. But if I understand the dates correctly, the Great Pyramid at Giza was standing when Moses led the Exodus. However, I doubt he was interested in it as a wonder because he was working wonders of his own. Chapter 11 of Exodus, the real wonder in Egypt was the series of signs God was performing through Moses and Aaron. When God first spoke to Moses from the burning bush, we read in chapter three, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. After nine such wonders, we read today in verses nine and 10, but the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. The tenth wonder was coming, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. In its aftermath, Pharaoh would finally relent. Now, chapter 11 is a pause, allowing us to take a breath before we get into the terror of that night. As Gandalf said to Pippin on the eve of the attack on Gondor, it's the deep breath before the plunge. As we catch our breath, we're reminded that our God is a God of wonders, that he does wonders, especially to forward his agenda to save lost men and women. I'll organize my comments on these verses around two points. Number one, God's plan to save you is a wonder in its completion. 
And number two, God's plan to save you is a wonder in its compassion. Let's take a look at its completion first in verses nine and 10. Do you have any unfinished projects at home? Ladies, don't elbow your husbands too hard. They have to finish their projects. God has an unfinished project, but he doesn't need to be elbowed to finish it. He's always working to bring it to completion. It's an ambitious project described by the Apostle Paul when he said in Romans, in fact, all creation is eagerly waiting for God to show who his children are. Meanwhile, creation is confused, not because it wants to be confused. God made it this way in the hope that creation would be set free from decay and would share in the glorious freedom of his children. Human history is moving towards a consummation when God will show who his children are. That's another way of saying that God is at work saving lost men and women for eternity. Meanwhile, creation is confused. That's putting it mildly. Uh, Creation groans, other translations say. We refer to creation as fallen, recognizing something has gone terribly wrong with the world in which we inhabit. One day, creation will be restored. Saved individuals will live for eternity in the restored creation. It will be the ultimate, and they lived happily ever after. From eternity past, God had a plan to save mankind and to restore fallen creation. It's a plan full of wonders as he works in human history to accomplish it. I mean, is it not a wonder that in the garden, God promised to add to uh, his deity humanity, to come as a man in order to defeat sin and Satan, saving men and restoring creation? Is it not a wonder that he made a nation from Abraham and Sarah when they were beyond the age and the ability to have children? There are wonders predicted in God's word that we can see in our world today. Is it not a wonder that Israel is a nation again and that Jews continue to return there from their dispersion all around the world? Speaking of God's word, is it not a wonder it's been preserved these many centuries despite the the efforts of men and entire nations to eradicate it? We see wonders most, of course, in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Wonders upon wonders. So many that the apostle John said if they were all written down, the world could not contain the books necessary to catalog them. God performed a series of wonders to get Israel out of Egypt. We've seen nine of them, and we're going to be introduced to the 10th. Chapter 11 is not in chronological order. It's clear from reading verses 9 and 10 that they occur after the ninth sign, but before the warning to Pharaoh about the death of his firstborn. They summarize the first nine signs, which we think occurred over a period of maybe eight months. Since they are not in chronological order, we can take them in logical order, and that's why we want to comment on verses 9 and 10 before we look at verses 1 through 8. So let's read verses 9 and 10 again. It says, but the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but every time we encounter this phrase, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, I feel that we do need to stop and explain it. And probably there's some here who haven't heard the explanation that we're giving yet. 
It sounds as if God was the cause of this hardening. It sounds as if God was asking Pharaoh to do something that he was preventing him from doing. In fact, a lot of Christians will tell you that is exactly what it means. Then they say it somehow glorifies God that he acts in a manner that would be evil if we did likewise. I mean, the the idea they portray is that uh, to give an illustration, it's as if I had a gun to Pharaoh's head and was saying, let my people go, but if you do, I'm gonna shoot you. Well, if I did that, that would be cruel. It would be evil. But to suggest God does it somehow gives him glory? Well, no, so we have to have an alternate explanation, and that explanation has to be biblical. Because God is no puppet master. He's no monster. The hardening, or another word for it, the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart was his own choice in response to pressure God was exerting upon him. And I've been using a current example of the pressure that the nations of the world are exerting upon Kim Jong-un of North Korea to try to get him to abandon his nuclear ambitions before he blows somebody up. With every round of new stricter sanctions, his decision to defy the world is only strengthened. You could accurately say of him that the nations of the world have hardened his heart. They have hardened his resolve. Now, the other thing we've talked about at length previously is that just because God has foreknowledge of Pharaoh's final decision, it doesn't mean God predestined it to occur apart from his free will. All things are foreknown by God, but not predetermined by him. So that's in the background. One of the things we learn from the wonders leading up to the Exodus is that God will most definitely bring his plan to completion. No matter Pharaoh's hardness of heart and God's unwillingness to violate Pharaoh's free will, you know all along that Moses is going to prevail and lead the Jews out of Egypt. God is going to bring to pass what he said would happen, and he's going to do it uh, without violating Pharaoh's free will. Looking ahead, God's plan for the future remains intact. God will resurrect and rapture the church. He will put the inhabitants of the earth through the seven-year great tribulation. Jesus will return in a glorious second coming to establish a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. Beyond that is the final judgment of all the lost at the great white throne. And finally, God will restore creation and we will enjoy his presence in eternity. God is simultaneously working in your life. Within that big picture, there is the little picture of your life. He who has begun a good work in you will certainly complete it. This is where some elbowing comes into play. It can seem as if God has set you aside, that you need to elbow him to get working again in your life because the walls aren't falling down, the water isn't parting. You don't really see anything happening. It's like, have you ever, ever had a neighbor or driven by a house, their garage is open and there's a car they're working on? An old GTO, a Mustang, some classic car, and you're anxious to see the progress they're making. They're out there at all hours of the night. Then some period of time goes by where you don't see anybody working on the car. Then one day you drive by and there's a brown tarp over the car. Can't have the car collecting dust while we're not able to work on it. And then a few weeks after that, there's some boxes on the brown tarp that is on the car. And then after about six months, there is no car. There's just what's surrounding it and is on top of it. 
And, and, and you, I feel like that's my life sometimes with the Lord. Lord, you promise you're gonna bring it to completion, but how long am I gonna be in the dark under this tarp? How many more boxes are you gonna pile up on me before we get this thing done? And I'll be elbowing God in my prayers, either directly or indirectly, uh, in order to try and figure out how this thing has stalled. I wonder if the Israelites ever felt that way. We see their plight differently because we have hindsight and we see the wonders that God performed. But think about their plight step by step as if you were involved with it as an Israelite. First of all, they'd already been subjected to Egypt for nearly 400 years waiting for their promised deliverance. When a deliverer was promised, they found themselves seeing their infant boys thrown into the Nile River to be drowned. Then when their deliverer showed up, he wasn't ready at age 40. He needed to learn how to shepherd. So the Israelites suffered another 40 years waiting for Moses to return. When he returned, their life was made more miserable when they were ordered to meet their daily quota of bricks without being provided the necessary materials to make bricks. Many of them were beaten because of it. Lately, as we've been studying in Exodus, they waited another eight months during which time they suffered along with the Egyptians through the first three signs. They were about to suffer through one terrifying night, asked to believe that a little lamb's blood applied to their doorpost would save their firstborn from being killed. Now, we look at that as if it's nothing. Of course, we understand the Passover, we understand the symbolism, the lamb represents Jesus Christ, our final Passover. This isn't how it came across that first night. Very, very terrifying. Going out into the desert would be no joy ride. They weren't used to traveling in the desert. Some of the people they would encounter along the way would be hostile. They'd be called upon to fight. They were farmers and brick makers, and yet they were called to combat. The promised land would present enormous challenges, literally, as there were Nephilim giants there who needed to be killed and dispossessed. Is that how we normally view those biblical events? No, we look back on them when we think this is a wonder. God provided for his children after 400 years. Moses in the wilderness learning how to be a shepherd. Because we know what the blood on the doorpost pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Jacob and, uh, or Joshua and Caleb going into the promised land and saying, we can take those giants, those 12 foot, 16 foot giants. They're no problem. Well, that's how we are going to look back over our lives as well. Right now, you're under a tarp, you're covered by boxes, you're elbowing the Lord, but one day, your life will be revealed as the wonder that it is. God is doing those wonders in your life. Some of his wonders you can see. Are you saved? It's a wonder of grace and mercy. God having provided Jesus as a substitute to take your punishment for sin. If you're saved later in life as an adult, think of where you'd be if it hadn't been for the intervention of Jesus Christ. Are you saved? It's a wonder that your body houses God the Holy Spirit. You ever stop and just pause and think, my body, this wreck of a body that I have, this earthen vessel is the home of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Are you saved? It's a wonder you're called upon to serve others in God's name and especially to be able to proclaim the gospel to the lost as an ambassador on earth of heaven. You know what it's like to tell somebody 
your sins can be forgiven, you can have eternal life with absolute authority, it's incredible. Are you saved? It's a wonder you could be raptured any moment. And if you're not, if you die, you're gonna be absent from your body and immediately present with the Lord in heaven. Have you sinned? It's a wonder that God forgives you 70 times seven, restoring you to fellowship with him. That your sin is always as far as the east is from the west. Next time we sing God of wonders, don't just think of water, earth, and sky, the heavens and beyond our galaxy. Think of yourself. You are a wonder. God is doing wonders in your life. Now, in verses one through eight, God's plan to save you is a wonder in its compassion. I hope by now you too see God's compassion in these nine wonders. They were signs that pointed to God being a wonderful God, and they were also plagues, obviously, because they were destructive. And so we call them, they're not really called plagues, though, much in the text. They're called wonders, and so that's the word we're camping on. Through them, God was reaching out to the Egyptians. And that's just not, uh, not just my opinion. It's not just my hoping to make God look better. He needs no defending from me or anyone else. It's borne out in the series of wonders themselves that God is compassionately reaching out to the Egyptians. First of all, most of the plagues were preceded by an announcement and a warning. Warnings indicate the opportunity to avoid something. There's a hilarious scene at the end of the latest Guardians of the Galaxy movie where one of the characters gets hit by a giant boulder and then another character says, watch out. Well, it's too late after you've been hit. And, and these warnings, don't, they don't come after, they come before. Moses tells Pharaoh what is going to happen if he doesn't let God's people go. Each succeeding uh, wonder was further proof of God's existence and power, giving greater substance to the warnings which followed. The Egyptians were specifically told to get their slaves and their livestock to safety before the plague of hail. Some of them heeded that warning and thereby lives were spared. During the plague of locusts, Egyptians approached Pharaoh begging him to yield to God. So some of them were coming around. In verse three of this chapter, we hear that all of the Egyptians came to respect Moses, so their hearts were changing. When the Jews do leave in the Exodus, we'll see many Egyptians accompany them and go out with them, trying to learn more about their God. So sure, God was judging Egypt. They deserved judgment, if for no other reason than they had enslaved the Israelites. But in wrath, God remembered mercy, and he was giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent. Don't forget either that God was showing them the weakness, the powerlessness of their many gods. I think we said that Egypt had somewhere around 150 different deities. This shows compassion. Why follow a God who cannot help or save you when the almighty God is reaching out to you. If a person you know is devoted to one of the world's religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they're on a broad road that leads to hell. Is it not compassionate to show them the powerlessness of their gods, to somehow reveal to them that your God is God? And so verse one, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Now, remember, these verses don't follow chronological order. 
At some point, God had given Moses this revelation of the 10th and final wonder. And with it, he gave him assurance it would be so severe that Pharaoh would, on his own, of his own free will, relent and let them go. Speak now, verse 2, in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. There's a lot of conversation among commentators about why exactly this took place, but one interesting uh, observation, when someone was freed from slavery, when their master set them free, it was typical to give them uh, certain gifts or valuables in order to begin their life as a free person. And so the, uh, the Israelites would have seen this as a symbol and a sign that they were definitely being freed from their slavery to the Egyptians once and for all to go out and serve the Lord. So it would have been a very big encouragement for them. They weren't just robbing the Egyptians or spoiling them or uh, anything like that. There was also symbolism involved. Verse 3 And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. The series of signs, devastating though they were, were wonders to the Egyptians that pointed to the greatness of Israel's God and his servant, Moses. The Egyptians were not filled with hatred or animosity toward God or Moses. Quite the opposite. They saw the hand of God in all of this. I'm not saying they were saved, only that their hearts were definitely affected for the good. Why accuse God of being cruel or vindictive in sending the plagues when their result was so spiritual? Would it be better to let the Egyptians prosper and never see the need to believe God to be saved? Uh, The non-believer comes and when they encounter this series of, uh, of plagues, we are calling them wonders, they think, What a terrible thing to do to a nation, to bring plague after plague after plague somewhat indiscriminately. And and I hope you see that's not what was happening at all. God was revealing himself using a language that the Egyptians would understand, giving them time and ability to repent. Look at it this way. The firstborn of every Egyptian would one day die from illness or accident or age. If they died without an opportunity to believe God and be saved, they'd face what the Bible calls the second death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. Instead, in compassion, God was telling them, tonight your firstborn will die if you don't do what I'm asking you to do. He will definitely die. She will definitely die. Animals too. There's gonna be a lot of death. Now, I maintain that that's a more compassionate ministry rather than to just leave people alone to live a marginal life, get through their life and die and go on into a Christless eternity. It's much better for somebody to have a crisis that is obviously from the Lord and make a spiritual decision. And so that's that's what I mean by compassion here in this situation. Now, this next set of verses chronologically took place at the end of chapter 10. Moses was still talking to Pharaoh. There, it says that he will never see Pharaoh again. 
then all of a sudden in chapter 11, he sees Pharaoh again. Well, he doesn't see him again. They're still in that same conversation, but there's been some verses that broke it up. So in verse four, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this last wonder is gonna occupy us for a few weeks. We'll talk more about the firstborn and that title and what it means in subsequent studies. But notice here, for our purposes today, God says, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, or just in general in our culture, uh, we like to say that the death angel went through Egypt and killed all the firstborn. Uh, I've said it, you've said it probably. Uh, The problem is the Bible doesn't say it. There is no such being or entity as the death angel. Uh, Think, you know, different cultures have different representations. We use the grim reaper, right? The grim reaper is sort of a death angel. Well, the Bible doesn't say it was a death angel. Uh, It will use the term destroyer, but notice what God says here. He says quite clearly, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God says he was gonna be the one that accomplishes this. It was the Lord himself. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, God's son, even his firstborn, released this judgment and conquered Pharaoh. It was Jesus in a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You see it all over the Old Testament. Anytime the angel of the Lord appears, that is Jesus before he took on a human body permanently uh, in the incarnation. And so the text here says, Jesus is the one who went through Egypt to accomplish this. Angels are certainly capable of killing people. Don't get me wrong. One angel, one night, killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were encamped around Jerusalem getting ready to destroy it. And so angels, I don't know what it is they carry as a concealed weapon, but they're ready to go. And so, but there is no death angel. This wasn't an angel. This was the angel of the Lord. Now, why is that so important to our theme? Since it was Jesus, we're even more prone to see the compassion involved in it, right? Have you ever thought for one millisecond about Jesus not being compassionate? Well, no, of course not. It's his nature, it's his character, it's who he is. He's overflowing his, with compassion. So when I suggest that he's this angel of the Lord that is going to execute this judgment, it is within his nature as a compassionate savior. So where's the compassion? Well, I can answer that by asking another question. Do you think Egyptians could have avoided the death of their firstborn by doing what God will tell the Israelites to do by applying the blood of a lamb on their doors so that the destroyer would pass over their homes. Do you think they could have avoided or do you think all Egyptians were automatically lost? Well, one commentator uh, commentator thinks they could have been saved. He puts it like this. He says, there is no specific mention of any Egyptian celebrating the first Passover, although this is possible and even likely. 
This possibility is enhanced by the report that some Egyptians had taken heed of previous warnings. Also in the instructions God will give concerning future observance of Passover, foreigners who placed themselves under the Abrahamic covenant were allowed to participate with no distinctions made between them and other Israelites. And so uh, the commentator is saying that we're not told that they could have done this, but we do know that they were warned in other situations and they save themselves, and in the future, the Passover is open to non-Jews as long as they convert uh, to Judaism. Now, we're not told if Egyptians could be spared, but we're not told they could not be spared. Left to decide, we fall on the side of grace. While the account is not written to underscore the conversion of Egyptians, I think there is ample evidence to suggest some Egyptians were converted to true faith in the God of Israel. Had an Egyptian family gone to ask the Israelites how to serve their God to avoid this plague, they could have received the instructions for the Passover and thus spared their family. Why believe they could not be spared if there is a biblical alternative that is more compassionate and in line with the character of God? Listen, if you can biblically believe something about God that amplifies his grace or mercy or love, or an alternative that makes him seem petty or cruel, go with the position that is most fitting of God's nature as revealed in the Bible. I don't know if you've realized it or not, there are some things that all Christians must believe as a bedrock orthodox foundation of the faith, that Jesus is God, for example, that God exists in a trinity, uh, those kinds of things that all Christians believe. But you've probably encountered, maybe even in your own household, that a lot of other things that are taught in Scripture, there are different ways of approaching it. And, and I'm suggesting that we always approach the Scripture in what theologians call a Christocentric way, that is, seeing Jesus, his character, his nature in it. And so if I have a choice to make between two doctrinal positions that can be defended from Scripture, and one is obviously more gracious and merciful and loving than the other, why would I gravitate toward the one that isn't? I'll give you an example. We probably don't have time for this, but let's make time. <laughs> Some of you have friends who have told you about the doctrine of double predestination, Double predestination is a doctrine that's taught by some theological systems. The idea is that God predestines some to salvation. So before you are even born, uh, God is already predestined in eternity past if you will be saved or not. Well, that means that he is also predestined that some people will not be saved in eternity past. And that means you cannot be saved because you are predestined for hell. And you might think, who believes that? Well, a lot of your friends do. A lot of people do. A lot of people you listen to on the radio do. And it's, a, it's, part, of, it's a part of the Reformed doctrine of salvation, but it's, it's a very small part, but there are a lot of people who believe that. And they tell you that if you don't believe that, anything else is a heresy. You have to believe that. Well, that's not true. Because God doesn't double predestine people. And, and so there's a theological position, many that teach otherwise. And so which do you want to choose if given a choice? 
Well, it tells me a lot about your personality if you choose the double predestination view. I've had people tell me that infants, when they die, they go to hell unless they're part of a certain covenant family. And that's just brings more glory to God because anybody that gets saved is a blessing. So the more people that aren't saved, I guess, well, I don't even know how to explain it anymore. So it's crazy. So I'm telling you that sometimes you're going to encounter different decisions about what to believe that Christians disagree on. Believe what is most true about Jesus Christ. Think about how Jesus is either amplified or criticized by these particular views and go with the one that's gracious. And so verse seven, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. While wailing and weeping and screaming and shrieking would fill the night in Egypt, it would be so peaceful in Goshen that the dogs wouldn't even bark. They would sleep right through the night. Verse eight, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out and all the people who follow you, after that I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Someone said to be in the presence of evil and not be angry is a dreadful spiritual and moral malady. And so we have an obligation in the face of great evil to be greatly offended and angry and want to do something. What a waste caused by Pharaoh's hardness of heart, unnecessary loss of life, economic and agricultural hardship for years and maybe even decades to come. Let's talk about Moses for just a minute. He faithfully discharged his mission and he stayed on message. The results were not what he might have hoped for. Pharaoh remained hardened, great ruin ensued. They would eventually be sent away, but after how much destruction? And even after they're sent away, you know that Pharaoh changes his mind and comes after them. What I'm getting at is that Moses' ministry wasn't as successful as it could have been. It didn't bear as much fruit as we would have liked it to bear because there was so much of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. And that's a roundabout way. It's an encouragement to you and I we are not responsible for the results of our ministry. I've heard it put like this, the husbandman cannot give the harvest, he is only responsible for the sowing. You and I sow the word of God. There may be seasons in your life where you're greatly blessed with fruitfulness. Get up in the morning and before you get to work, five people have asked you what they need to do to be saved and three of them get saved, and you're just, fruit is all over the place. Other times you're wondering if you heard the wrong message, if you're in the wrong place. Why am I here? What am I doing? Because nobody seems to be responding. Not your problem. You are responsible for sowing, not the harvest. Now, the Israelites must be released to journey toward the promised land. God provided for this part of his plan by the 10 wonders he brought to pressure Egypt, He could have delivered Israel immediately or in any number of other ways. Uh, Moses could have come in and said, tonight an angel is going to come through and kill every Egyptian, but maybe two or three of you. And then tomorrow we're just gonna leave because there won't be any resistance. Well, of course God could have done that. But he chose to do it this particular way because as I've said before, This was a language the Egyptians would understand. They worshiped 150 different gods. 
these demons that inhabited these statues and, and all this kind of stuff. And God said, I need, I'm gonna show you that I am more powerful than your gods, that you should convert to me and I will take care of you the way I'm going to take care of my special people. And it was a language they'd understand. Sometimes you have to speak to somebody in their own language to really get through. And that's what God did. He chose compassion, reaching out to save them, putting his glory and power on display. God's plan to save men and to restore creation cannot fail. He provides for it. He does it compassionately without violating free will. When we studied through the book of the Revelation in the Great Tribulation, we called that whole series of studies the grace of wrath because while all these terrible things are pummeling the earth, hailstones and wormwood and water turning to blood and all this kinds of stuff, God is doing what? Warning people. This is what's coming if you don't repent. Speaking to people in the only language they will understand. And even then, men would shake their fist at God and hide from God and reject God. It's compassionate of God to reach out to them. Along the way, God tolerates evil. He could and he will overcome evil once for all. In eternity, we read there will be no more tears. But once evil is totally eradicated, it means there is no more opportunity for lost individuals to be saved. Their eternal destiny will be set. Meanwhile, though you may not see it through your tears currently, he is your God of wonders. He's working in you to bring to completion the work he began in you when you got saved. And it's a work he will finish because he's promised to do it. 